I invite you to turn with me to 2 Timothy and to chapter 4. And as you turn there, I want to say thank you for the privilege of being here. I have arrived somewhat abruptly, and I have to leave again somewhat abruptly. I regret this. I'm not in control of my own destiny. I'm glad I've had the chance to uh, meet one or two people, and I'm delighted to be, uh, if you like, formally identified with, uh, with the work of Radiance. Uh, the couple that uh, Brooks is just referring to uh, from our church are with us for a few weeks, and uh, he was present at our team meeting on Monday at lunchtime and uh, gave uh, a wonderful uh, report, an encouraging report of all that they've been doing in this last little while. I would like to read from uh, verse 1 of chapter 4 through to uh, verse 8. And Paul writes, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Amen. Well, a brief prayer. Our gracious God, we thank you that you have, in your providence, assembled us together for these days and for the express purpose of opening our hearts and minds to the truth of your word and seeking to exhort and encourage one another to think properly about what our gospel message actually is and what it isn't, uh, to marvel at those whom you have used in days gone by upon whose shoulders we stand, and to help us to think about just what's involved in finishing the task and being involved with others similarly in engaging a world that is so desperately in need of the good news of Jesus with the story that we have been given to share. We pray that as we come to the embers, as it were, of what has been a long day, that you will give to us facility of thinking and that you will help me in my words so that we might be of help and not a hindrance in any way to one another. For we pray expectantly in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the brief uh, that I have for uh, these uh, moments now is to think together about uh, the way in which Paul speaks about finishing the task. And the verses that uh, came at the conclusion of what I read, particularly verses 6, 7, and 8, really are to be the focus. But I want to lead into this by 
engulfing terminology, waggling the club on the tee for a little while. Uh, There are certain golfers who seem to be there for an interminable length of time, and uh, there are some ministers also. I, I fear that I have the tendency in that regard. But as I sat to work on these verses, um, I, I pondered something, and I'm going to share just a little of my pondering by way of introduction. I was thinking about the fact that missionary hymns, which were a huge part of my upbringing in the 50s and early 60s in Scotland, missionary hymns do not seem to be uh, as prevalent as they once were. Now, that may be because uh, I'm a bit of a Neanderthal when it comes to hymns and songs, and there may be some wonderful ones that you're going to tell me about afterwards and uh, chide me for suggesting that somehow or another uh, the world has moved on and missed this. But let me tell you about someone who is a lesser-known hymn writer. I'll be surprised if anybody really knows this lady, although there may be somebody. Sarah Geraldina Stock. Uh, She lived 60 years uh, uh, between 1838 and 1898, and she lived essentially within the framework of an era that was consumed with the thought of reaching the world for Jesus Christ. Her brother, a man by the name of Eugene, was the secretary and the historian of the Church Missionary Society, which was a vibrant missionary society at that time. And I think it would have been impossible to have met this lady without having her uh, tell us and essentially give to us songs that we could sing to encourage us in this regard. When I say that she was sort of marinated in the idea of world mission, if you think about it, she was 47 when the Cambridge Seven left for China. And she would have been uh, well aware of the amazing sense of call and urgency that marked the departure of C.T. Studd and D.E. Host and the others who joined them. She's the one who wrote the hymn, O Master, when thou callest, no heart may dare refuse. Tis honor, highest honor, when thou dost deign to use our brightest and our fairest, our dearest all are thine. Thou who for each one carest, we hail thy love's design. She's also the author of the song that begins, Let the song go round the earth, Jesus Christ is King. She missed the World Missionary Conference in Edinburgh, which was held in 1910. She missed it as a result of going to be with Jesus by 12 years. Uh, Therefore, uh, she would never have uh, heard what went on, nor would she have realized that one of her hymns was sung at that missionary conference, a hymn which begins, Lord, thy ransomed church is waking out of slumber far and near, knowing that the morn is breaking, when the bridegroom shall appear. Of course, she was gone by 1898. That conference was in 1910. It was followed a hundred years later by another World Missionary Conference in Edinburgh in 2010. Some of you may have been there. If our new friend, Sarah, had happened to be there and witnessed what took place, she would perhaps have had occasion to wonder if Uh, some 112 years on, 
the church had actually fallen asleep on the job. She might have had occasion, if she could have rallied them, to encourage them with another of her songs, which begins in a kind of 2 Timothy 4-7 style. There's a fight to be fought, and a work to be done, and a foe to be fought ere the set of the sun. In other words, she would have been actually really alarmed by what had happened in a century between 1910 and 2010. Oh, it was still called the World Missionary Conference. The numbers were sadly depleted, and the emphasis in 2010 was vastly different from the emphasis of 1910. Indeed, I would imagine that some of the things that were mentioned uh, by Kevin earlier in the day had already found a seedbed in much that was taking place there. If you think about it, the majority of the great missionary hymns were written in that era, roughly uh, the end of the 19th century into the beginning of the 20th century. The last one of note, at least in my calculations, was written in 1931 uh, by Frank Houghton of the Overseas Missionary Fellowship, a song that was popularized by the chorus that was added by Keith Getty. And uh, here we are. And I don't know because I haven't been here for any of the singing, but I'm sure that there is a very strong and encouraging emphasis that perhaps even bears testimony to the work of that lady. Now, all of that simply to say this, that as a church sings, as a local church sings, and as church, Big C sings, you just go. You will find out where their longings and their emphases lie. And I'm simply suggesting, it is an observation, it is unresearched, but I'm suggesting that the kind of emphasis that is represented in this gathering is an emphasis that particularly young people need to bring back into their local congregations to remind one another that we are engaged in a task which is as yet an unfinished task, and we are invited to participate in its progress. We might be able to say, you know, with Winston Churchill, remember uh, when he was trying to get the Americans involved, and uh, he says, you know, if you will give us the tools, we will finish the job. Well, what Paul is saying to Timothy is, you already have the tools, you're strengthened with all might by God's glorious might, now here is what I want you to do. Now, that's the waggling on the tea finished. I'm going to come more directly to the text. It is clear that Paul is not sugarcoating the challenge. He's already told them that there will be times of difficulty. He's identified the fact earlier in chapter 3 that there will be persecution for all who are involved. Therefore, it is imperative that Timothy continues in the things that he has become convinced of, knowing those from whom he has learned these things, and how he is absolutely convinced that the message of the gospel and the scriptures, the sacred writings, are able to make him wise for salvation in faith, uh, by his faith in Jesus Christ. He is involved in mission. He is picking up a piece. If you like, the transition is taking place in the relay race of life between the apostolic and the post-apostolic church, and we're in that little place there in the middle, in that box, where the one thing you do not want to do is mishandle the baton as it is passed into your hand. And what is happening here is that the mission of, of the Lord Jesus Christ, who came into the world to save sinners, is the mission to which 
Saul, then Paul has been assigned. He says in 1 Corinthians 9 that his great passion is to win as many as possible. And uh, that's the NIV, I think I'm quoting there. And the question then is, how is Timothy to succeed in mission when Paul has gone? When Paul is no longer there to hold his hand, when he's no longer there to look him in the eye and say, come on now, Timothy, let's be about the task. Well, that is actually answered for us in measure in these verses that are before us. And I want to give you simply four words to help me navigate, and if it helps you, that's fine, and if it doesn't, then don't write them down. But let's begin by recognizing that there are significant imperatives that run throughout this letter. And so the first word is essentially exhortation, exhortation. As he comes to the end of this letter in reading it, Timothy is being made aware of the importance of fanning into a flame the gift that is in him through the laying on of hands, to which Paul writes in chapter 1 at the beginning of the letter. It's as if he's saying to him, uh, using a metaphor, what he writes in Romans 12, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord, fan it into a flame, keep the pot boiling, make sure the kettle is ready, and don't, uh, don't lose out in any way at all. That is vitally important. And also, not only that he fans into a flame the gift, but that he makes sure that he is recruiting the faithful ones who will in turn, having received from him the directives, go on themselves to do the task of mission and then to encourage others. So classically in the Dawson-Trotman verse, if we might refer to it in that way, the founder of the Navigators, uh, 2 Timothy 2.2, four generations are involved. Paul to Timothy, Timothy to faithful men, and faithful men who will teach others also. And that is a sort of recurring line through the letter, and understandably so. He's giving to him this counsel, this exhortation. But just notice verse 5 in particular, and then into verse 6, which is our text. Verse 5 is uh, uh, very clear, isn't it? Uh, in contrast to others around you, the wanderers, uh, the myth swallowers, as for you, four things. Always be sober-minded. As a man thinks, as a woman thinks, so he or she actually is. Be sober-minded, or in the NIV, keep your head. Keep your head. Secondly, he says, and you need to make sure that you are able to endure suffering, or in the NIV, enduring hardship. There's no sense in which he is suggesting to Timothy that this is going to be a walk in the park. Thirdly, do the work of an evangelist. I don't think he's suggesting there that he fills in for people who are not doing their work. There's only one person, actually, in the New Testament who is referred to as an evangelist. Philip. That's right. I knew you all got it immediately. I could see that. I see some of, the, some of you looking desperately anxious in case I pointed out you and said, who, and who was that? But anyway, you remember Philip. So what is he saying to him? He's saying, well, you're going to be the one who is preaching the Word. You're not going to be able to preach the Word without evangelizing. Therefore, make sure that you're telling people about Jesus. You're not simply there uh, to let people know how clever you are, Timothy, and you may even not be that clever but make sure that you do the work of an evangelist and discharge all the duties of your ministry. 
discharge all the duties of your ministry. In other words, in the exhortation, there is really no wiggle room at all. And as you waken up in the morning, if you're involved in the service of the king, and you say to yourself, I says, now this is uh, Wednesday, what shall I do today? Then I'll tell you what you shall do. You shall, number one, keep your head. Number two, endure hardship. Number three, tell people about Jesus. And number four, do all your duties, or what you call duties. <laughs> but they really are duties. And uh, I have an ongoing battle with one of my grandchildren because she says, Papa, it's not Tuesday, it's Tuesday. And, uh, you know, why can't the English teach their children how to speak? But anyway, there we, there we go. <laughs> Duty. Let me just finish with one, one observation. Um, the Battle of Trafalgar, uh, 1805. Uh, Nelson puts the flags up the ship for all the sailors that are going to go against the Spanish and the French. And the flags send out this message, England expects that this day every man will do his duty. England expects. It doesn't say England asks. England expects that this day every man will do his duty. And they did. And so did Nelson and was mortally wounded in the triumph of the Battle of Trafalgar. He led not only by his exhortation, but he led by his example. So, that exhortation gives way then, in verse 6, to his explanation. It begins with the conjunction for, for. In other words, this is why I'm saying to you what I'm saying to you. This is a matter of urgency, Timothy, and particularly in two arenas. One, if you go back up the text uh, to uh, what he has said before, because of the hostility that exists towards the truth that you're going to convey— and classically, he's going to go on and identify one particular individual, namely Alexander, uh, the metal worker, who he says did me great harm. And he says, I want you to be make sure that you don't get caught up with him. And the reason for that is, this is not a personality clash, he says, but Alexander strongly opposed our message. The opposition was not a clash of personality. It was an opposition to the truth of the gospel. And Paul says, Timothy, you're going to have to take this up, and you're going to have to go on with this. If this task is to be finished, you are vital in the program. And here we are at this point in the 21st century, and it would be a strange group if we didn't know of at least a number of Alexanders in the, period, in the experience of our lives and ministry. And the fact of the matter is, the great danger that confronts us is not largely the danger of a secularism from without. Many places in the world have dealt with far worse than we're facing, and yet the gospel has thrived. No, the great danger is a loss of confidence within, a loss of confidence in the truth and the power and the relevance of the gospel itself. The danger of an approach to things that becomes theologically vague and becomes at the same time accommodating in a way that is actually harmful. Um, 20, what, 50 years ago, uh, John Stott, observing in his day, he said, all around us 
we see Christians relaxing their grasp of the gospel, fumbling it, in danger of letting it drop from their hands altogether, fumbling the gospel, unclear about the message, unclear about the implications. No. So he says, the reason that I'm speaking to you as I am is in light of, first of all, the hostility that exists towards the truth, but secondly and primarily in relationship to the, t- the certainty of my death. Do this. Fulfill this. Because I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. There's nothing quite like the reality of death to clarify the issues of life. It's one of the reasons that from the very beginning, uh, the evil one challenges the notion of death, doesn't he? Genesis chapter 3, he says to Adam and Eve, oh, don't worry about that. You're not going to die. You won't die. And so we live in a, in a world where people are consumed with all kinds of notions, trying their, their very best to make sure that what must come is not going to come. So all the vast billions of Bezos, he's going to find out how to live forever. We can tell him. It has to do with bowing the knee to Jesus of Nazareth. He is the resurrection and the life. Now, says Paul, you need to know that I am already, notice that, I am already being poured out. The word there is a very specific word, spendumai. It's found as the drink offering throughout the Old Testament, Exodus 29, Numbers 15. You can find it in various places. If you're an Old Testament reader, you will have identified it. At the moment in the Murray McShane readings, we just began Joshua this morning. We're out of Deuteronomy, breathing a sigh of relief, some of us, and moving on. Prior to that, of course, we were wrestling through Leviticus and sometimes saying, I wonder what this is all about. Why are we doing these things? Well, you remember that the drink offering was poured out either as a main offering or poured out alongside another offering, so that if there was an animal sacrificed, a drink offering may actually be poured on it or would be accompanied with it. And it's actually the picture that uh, we find here in relationship to Jesus and James. In fact, it's the picture that Paul uses in Romans chapter 12 when again he exhorts his readers to present their bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is their spiritual worship. You remember that? And And he points it out, I appeal to you by the mercies of God that you offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. And, and the picture he's using is, again, the Old Testament picture. The offering of Jesus was a propitiatory sacrifice. It was a sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins, as in the Old Testament. And then there would be a dedicatory sacrifice, which was a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And Paul is using similar terminology here, and he's making it clear that if you are going to Timothy get serious about this, you need to realize that the cup is already tipped, as it were, in my life. This is already happening. He has no assurance that he will see Timothy again. He wants to see him again, but he has no guarantee that he will. And so he says, this is me. My life is a drink offering. Now, if you think about that, if we'd come on a scene like that and we didn't know what was going on, we were wandering through the book of Leviticus, as it were, and we came on this. And after the sacrifice of the the animal, somebody had taken a bottle of oil or a bottle of wine, and they just poured it out on the ground beside it. And someone would say, well, that's an amazing waste of oil. 
That's an amazing waste of the, the wine. Well, surely that's what some people would have been saying about this. The imprisoned Paul. Isn't that a waste of a great apostle? The death of Paul. Isn't that a waste? And you will notice, I think, as you look at the text, that this is passive. This is passive. I am already being poured out. He's not pouring himself out. He is actually pouring himself out. He's giving himself unstintingly. But he says, as I see it and as I understand it, this is what is happening to me. God is at work both in his life and in his death. As I pause there in my notes, I I find myself going back to look for an old Newsweek article that goes way, way back to 1978. And I found it online, and you can find it in the New York Times as well. And there it records an event in Rhodesia, Zimbabwe as it is now, when 12 Elam missionaries were, were killed by guerrillas. The article in Newsweek, when it was published, says there, there, was, there is one, in present tense terms, there is one young Welsh girl who, whose life is hanging by a thread. That young Welsh girl was my friend, Mary Fisher. We studied together. In 75, she went to Rhodesia to become a missionary to the Shona children particularly. She learned Shona. She embedded herself with her. And one day in the school, the guerrillas came and wiped out a significant number of them. And the people looked on that and said, surely, what a waste. No waste. No waste. Her mom and dad were not Christians in Wales. When they gathered up her belongings and sent them back to her, to her parents, it's in the days of cassette tapes, and they found these cassette tapes of Mary with her guitar teaching songs to the children, singing them in Shona. And the one that was embedded in the tape, I'm not going to give it to you in Shona because I can't, but translated into the language that she was using, it went like this. To me, to live as Christ, to die is gain. To hold his hand and walk his narrow way. There is no peace, no joy, no thrill like walking in his will. To me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. What a waste. No waste she would be intrigued to think, one, that I was a pastor because she didn't think much of me at all, and, t- and, two, and two, that I would be rehearsing the consistent testimony of her life, poured out like a drink offering. Now, the explanation, in case you've forgotten this, is the explanation verse. The explanation that he's giving for the urgency is not only the hostility to the truth, but the certainty of his death, a death which he describes in two terms, first as a drink offering being poured out, and secondly, in terms of his departure. He's in the departure lounge, if you like, which, of course, in in, uh, present-day air travel doesn't mean very much at all. It just means you'll be there for the rest of your life. But what he's saying here is, no, 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 the time uh, time of my departure has come. There will be a time for everybody's departure. All the days of your life were written in this book before one of them came to be. 
So he says, the time has come for my departure. The word that is used there again is a graphic word, analusis. It actually was used to describe, uh, for example, the unyoking of an oxen at the end of a day, the weighing of anchor to return to your uh, harbor, and the loosening of the tent pegs so that you could strike your tent and go home. Now, here's the interesting thing, and you say, well, you better have some explanation for all that stuff about that hymn writer at the beginning. Well, yes, I do, you see, because at a certain point in church history, the people were living with such an awareness of their departure. They had the notion of, I will depart and Jesus will return. And that, that, that framed so much of their thinking, so much of their preaching, and inevitably so much of their singing. That's why when you go back even further than that, it's no surprise that somebody who died at 29, Robert Murray McShane, who was a, a, a missionary zealot, albeit in St. Peter's in Dundee, he's the one who gave us the hymn which begins, When this passing world is done, when has set yon sacred sun? Not till then, O Lord. I know not till then how much I owe. Or Richard Baxter in Kidderminster, in his memorable hymn, which begins amazingly, Lord, it belongs not to my care whether I die or live. To love and serve thee is my share, and this thy grace must give. What's interesting, at least to me there in that sixth verse, is that as he identifies this, I am already being poured out a drink offering. The time has come for my departure. You'll notice there are no expressions of regret. There's no indication of sadness. There actually, it would seem that, 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 that he has a sense of satisfaction. Satisfaction. He could never have understood Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones. I can't get no satisfaction. No. And that's my next word, actually. I was going to use completion because I thought that was supposed to what I was supposed to say, but I think satisfaction suits better. I recall, I want to call it a holy satisfaction. A holy satisfaction. He's going to tell us that he's pretty well through with the program. This is not smugness. This is not, uh, I want to tell you about me and my ministry. No, it's his awareness of the fact that God laid hold of him, God equipped him, God used him, and he's going. And he's going in the awareness of the completion of the task for him. And you will notice what he says in there. You probably have memorized this verse. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have, I have kept the faith. Those of you who are Greek scholars know that in English it comes out that way. But in Greek it starts with the, with the the, the race I have run, the faith I have fought. The emphasis is not on me. It's not him saying, look what I've done, look what I've done. No, the emphasis is on the fight, the agon. The agon, which gives us agonizomai, which gives us agony, which gives us an idea of what he's been on about. Again, he has told Timothy, all who are going to get serious about Jesus will be persecuted one way or another. And so he says, I've been wrestling I've been exerting effort. I've been struggling. I think probably a cross-reference would maybe in, in 1 Corinthians 9, where he says there, uh, similarly, doesn't he? Uh, where is that? 
He said, oh yeah, don't you know they didn't erase all the runners run, only one receives the prize. He's not running against anybody here, it would seem. But I don't run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air. I discipline my body. I keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. In other words, he is very, very serious about this. I, the fight, the, the fight I have fought. It's in the perfect tense. I did it. In other words, what he's saying in, in common parlance is, been there, done that. Been there, done that. Some of us think we're very smart talking about what others have done. We've never walked in their moccasins. We've never been where they are. We haven't a clue what they're doing. But we think somehow or another, from some vantage point, we could pontificate. No, no, no. No. Timothy is going to realize this big time in his own life. And it is a very important reminder, isn't it? I was not a rugby player. You can tell that just by looking at me. But I did play rugby at Ilkley Grammar School in Yorkshire. I had to. I had to do something. They didn't have football. And so... I used to try and play, but I was, I was very fearful. You know, they, they're very big people, and they, and they run at you. And, uh, and you either have to just uh, curl up in a ball and wait till they pass, or you're supposed to do something with them. But I can remember the horrible embarrassment of the, of the person who was responsible for our team saying to me at halftime, Beg, you're a complete disaster. <laughs> you, you haven't even got your knees brown. Because I was running away all the time. I'm not going to run down on the ground, No. That's some people's approach to the Christian life. There's even a kind of teaching that goes along this way. In fact, I spoke at a conference many, many years ago in, uh, in the north of England, and somebody got up and sang a song before me. I don't know what the song was, but it went. The, the, the sort of emphasis was, no more struggle, no more fight, walking gladly in the night. And I'm thinking, oh, wow, where did you get that from? Because now I'm about to talk about the struggle that exists in following Jesus. <laughs> It was, it was as big a disconnect as you could ever imagine. But, you know, you can always count on people not paying attention to anything. There was, oh, it was a wonderful song and a wonderful talk, and nobody knows anything about it at all. In fact, that's one of the biggest fights of all. Okay, the fight. The race, a foot race. Completed, he says. Arrived at my goal. I breasted the tape. Philippians 3.14 I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. He lived, he's lived his whole life with that as his point of direction, at the point to which he's running. Where are you going? This is where I'm going. Why are you going? Jesus sent me. How are you going? He's helping me. What are you doing? Telling others. You know, if, if someone asks you what you're doing, you can't answer in a sentence. I'm telling you, you don't know what you're doing. And that's why many of us as pastors, have a very hard time because our wife said to us on Saturday night, in one sentence, tell me what you're saying tomorrow. And she falls asleep while I'm trying to explain. <laughs> and in the morning, she says, I don't think you know what you're doing today. And I, sometimes I have to say, I think you're perfectly right. But anyway, I know what I'm doing right now, and that is proceeding. Notice, fight, fought, race, run, faith, kept. The two pictures, they're essentially pictures, aren't they? running a race and fighting, are there to illustrate, if you like, the literal aspect of what's taking place. The faith, he says, I have kept. He has remained faithful and true to that which he has received and he has delivered. 
The, the commentators disagree about whether he's referring to the faith with a definite article or whether he's saying, I have been faithful. I don't think you have to worry either way. Uh, the objective truth of the faith, uh, in terms of, for example, 1 Corinthians 15, for I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received from the Lord, that, and then he goes through, Christ died, Christ was buried, Christ was raised, and so on. That objective truth has been the basis of his subjective experience. He stands on this. He is going to die for this. He must be convinced of this, and he is seeking to remind Timothy of all that Timothy has seen of him, and he's heard about him, and now he's going to be entrusted with a challenge of finishing. So, that then is by way of explanation. He is, if you like, he has said no to cowardice engaged in the fight. He has said no to laziness committing himself to the race. And he has said no to cluelessness keeping true to the faith that he delivers. In other words, he's enjoying the satisfaction of a job well done, of a mission completed. Because he's already told Timothy that he has not been given a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and of love and of self-control. And now, in this little section of his letter, he's giving to Timothy the clear reminder that both by his exhortation and by his example, he is able to urge Timothy along. Now, when we go forward from there, you will notice that he then lives with anticipation. Verse 8, henceforth, henceforth. It's a good word. Henceforth, we will be having dinner. And uh, we're looking forward to it very much. Henceforth, beyond that, I'm not sure what else is going to happen. What does he say here? Henceforth, there is laid up for me. In other words, he's pointing out that in Jesus, for the Christian, the best is always yet to be. The best is always yet to be. So, what he does here is similar to what Peter does in his letter. Remember when he says in chapter 5, he says, we haven't yet encountered the glory that is yet to be revealed. He goes on to speak about the unfading crown of glory, which Peter says is going to be given when the chief shepherd appears, and which Paul says here will be handed out, if you like, by the righteous judge. Henceforth, if you're worried about where I'm heading, Timothy, if you want to know where my gaze is set, well, here it is. There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me. Now, this crown of righteousness is a crown that is only going to be enjoyed by those who have lived life seeking after righteousness. Remember? Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness shall be filled. Matthew 6, after Matthew 5, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But we have to be very, very clear. This is not the certainty of a man looking forward to an award that he has merited. No, he is looking forward to receiving something that he actually has not deserved. Remember, the Bible makes it very clear to us that the disciples understood it, and so must we, that on our best day, we are unprofitable servants. And it's very, very important that we understand that the one who awards the crown 
is the one who assures us of its certainty. I remember when I came here for the first time, somebody offered me tickets for a baseball game. There used to be a team called the Indians, the Cleveland Indians, before political correctness destroyed the universe. And, <laughs> and um, they told me, I said, well, where are the tickets? They said, well, you'll get them at will call. They said it just like that, at will call. Well, I had no clue what that was. I tried saying it to myself, Wilco, Wilco, I don't know. And so I actually was, I, I said to somebody, excuse me, what is Wilco? The guy said, ah, you mean will call? I said, well, yes, I guess I do, but why didn't you say that? I mean, why did you call it Wilco? Anyway, you go up there, you know that, and you give them your name. What are the chances of getting anything there? Hello, I'm Alistair Bay. I like tickets for the game. Did anyone leave them for you? Well, I don't know. They just told me, go to Wilco. Well, you can't just walk up here on your own and just get stuff. Somebody has to leave them for you. They have to be set aside with your name on them. Well, if somebody's going to set them aside for me with my name on, I want to know who's going to set them aside. Because I don't trust everybody to do what they say. There's absolutely no question. This, he says, is laid up for him. The one who began the good work, Philippians 1, is the one who brings it to completion at the day of at Jesus Christ. And before we leave this and conclude, let's understand very, very clearly that Paul has spent his whole life proclaiming a righteousness that is in Christ alone. And he clearly is not undermining all that he has taught about the doctrine of justification by faith by, at the end of his life, teaching about an award that is given on account of good works. No, he's not. And so... If you were to doubt that at all, perhaps to think, well, it's a special thing if you're an apostle, you get this. There's a sort of, it's, it's a, a preferred group. You know, you have a certain tag on your bag. If you get that, then perhaps you'll be there. No, 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 no. It's much better than that. The, the righteous judge will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. There's going to be one day, and the crown— for all who loved his appearing. Jesus has appeared. Perhaps it's a reference to his death and resurrection, because there in his death and resurrection is the answer to our sin. Perhaps it is to his yet to appear, the fact that it is past tense to these people. They remember that Jesus is the risen king. And then again, that is the prospect. Coming full circle to the songs again, there is a paucity of lyrical content about heaven itself in contemporary hymnody. Check and see. The reason that people did what they did in relationship to world mission and do what they do is because the then impinges so strongly 
on the now that they are prepared to give up their entire now in relationship to the then. I mean, what are you going to get back for this? What are you going to see? Spending all that time learning a language. Goodness, you can barely speak English. Huh? People say, what a waste. He had such a good degree. She was such a clever girl. Did you hear what she's done? I don't know what happened to her. She went to a something called radical or radius or something with an R. She's never been the same since. Hallelujah. Well, an exhortation to be heeded, an explanation for the urgency to be understood, a satisfaction to observe, and an anticipation to enjoy. Charles Simeon was ordained and uh, I think the 21st of May, something like that, in 1872. In 1782, I beg your pardon. I spoiled it by 100 years. 1782. You remember it? Yeah. That's what I thought. 1782. Cambridge. At, at the 50-year mark, he was serving in the church for 50 years. He was a minister there for more than 50 years before he finally graduated. And at the big celebration for his 50th anniversary, a number of the people around him began to encourage him. You know, Simeon, you've worked very hard for a long time. You're an older man now. Uh, Your disciplines have been very strong and severe, and you're very focused and so on. And our advice to you is, you know, you don't just have to go as hard at it as you've been going. There's, There's a time for everything. It's in Ecclesiastes 3, you know. There's a time to this and a time to that. And we think this is the thing. And Simeon said to them, let me ask you a question. Shall I not run with all my might now that I see the finishing tape in view? You see, it's the finish. It's the finish. As Charlie Brown said, you know, I don't care how the day starts. It's how it ends up that worries me. Demas had run. No finish. Sadly, we have been in the company of friends, some who actually taught the Bible to us, who have wandered into Bypath Meadow. No finish. Do you know how you finish? You keep going. You endure hardship. You keep your head. You tell others about Jesus. You do your duty. There's got to be a hymn by that Sarah girl, isn't there? Yes, here it is. It's a prayer. Back to the beginning. This is what she wrote. I can't wait to meet this lady now. She becomes some of her friend this week. Sarah Geraldina Stock. How thankful I am for so many who wrote these songs. I mean, you take Cecil Francis Alexander, for example, writing all these songs for children. Um, once in Royal David City to teach the Incarnation. There is a green hill far away outside a city wall to teach the Atonement. All things bright and beautiful, all creatures great and small to teach, to teach the doctrine of creation. Fantastic. And this is her. Sarah, that is. 
Set on fire our heart's devotion with the love of your dear name till o'er every land and ocean, lips and lives, your cross proclaim. Fix our eyes on your returning, keeping watch till you shall come. Bow with me and let me make that our prayer as we finish. Lord, help us then to set set on fire our heart's devotion with the love of your dear name till across the lands and oceans, lips and lives, your cross proclaim. Help that we might fix our eyes on your returning, keeping watch till you shall come. Lord, help us to help one another to seek to finish the great privilege that is set out before us to tell others unreservedly that in Jesus and only in Jesus there is salvation. For we pray in his name. Amen.